0: I want you to track with me and, and think about this. I don't know if you ever wonder um, why we do certain things. Uh, there's this instinct that it's universal. There's an instinct that we have to, to try to connect with other people, to, to try to make friendships. Uh, why, why do we have this drive to connect? Why? Do we seek out friendships? Why do we want to have children? And some people wonder, (laughs) children are challenging. Why do we want to have children? Why do we want to get married? Marriage is challenging. Not only why do we want to get married, sometimes why do we want to get married over and over and over? You know, you you get knocked off that marriage horse a few times. I, I had family members who were married seven times. And I'm thinking, uh, put the best spin on it. These are optimistic people. (laughs) But why, when we have a good experience, do we want to go share it with someone? I mean, Kathy knows when I cook, I'll always cook more than I make. Because if it's a good meal, I want to put some in, in in a container and and give it to our kids or give it to somebody else, and whether they want it or not. (laughs) And part of that's because when you share something with someone else that you've enjoyed, you get to re-experience it, even if it's just in a small measure, right? But there's this drive in us. And some people would say it's it's an evolutionary adaptation for the survival of the species. This desire to connect... Is nothing more than you know an evolutionary accident, but the truth is, uh, if you take, if you want to take what the Bible says seriously, or even look at it, uh, there's something way deeper in that instinct, and it explains it. And I, what I want to do is explore that today, because in talking about the whole idea of community and connections, and last week we, you know, we talked about that as part of our goal this year as a church. We're going to read parts of the creation narrative, uh, the account of, of how God made things in the first three chapters of Genesis, and these first three chapters are literally just packed with uh, insight, rich, rich, rich insight, and we could study these for months. We're just going to touch on a couple of points related to why it's not good for us to be alone. We all have this sense inside us, whether we consciously acknowledge this, it it drives us. We have have an inner compass that says, it's not good to be alone. Yet, we also have an ambivalence, we're conflicted about the idea of community. And that's near universal. I'd say it is universal. And we're going to see why that is, why we're... We have this instinct that it's not good to be alone, but also why we struggle when we try to connect and relate. And the book of Genesis uh, tells us, and and Genesis means origins, beginnings. And so in Genesis chapter 1, if you could turn there with me in the first chapter, this is the easy place for you to find when we uh, do our little uh, Bible. Where's Waldo here? Genesis 1 Starting in verse 26. And if you don't have a Bible under the chair seats in front of you, there's paperback Bibles and just start at the beginning and go right and you'll see Genesis 1, 26. It says, then God said, and this is after God's made uh, the heavens and the earth and all the animals and the seas and everything. Now he's coming to the the end of his, the, the creation narrative and sort of the high point of what He had made. And it says, And God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, male and female, and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that is fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. So, this is a creation account, and in, in uh, ancient uh, stories of creation, this is a really unique account. There might be a, a few similarities to other Mesopotamian myths or others if you're familiar with those, but this is really unique. In fact, one of the things about it as a sidelight, this is the only account in the ancient world that shows woman being made that puts, it, that puts the creation of women and their place in, in things in a positive light. This is the only one. Of all the ancient creation narratives and myths that describe how things got there, that guided communities to, to understand why the world was the way it was. This is the only one that puts the creation of women in a positive light. Surprise. Uh, what this says, this little passage you read, says that we're made in God's image, all of us. In God's image and God's likeness. And that what that implies, and you can see it in the, in the story, is God said, Let us make man in our image. And, and, In the Old Testament, we see what God's like, and then as as the New Testament unfolds, as Jesus comes on the scene, it's like the curtain is drawn, and we see more about God than we ever saw before, because Jesus put God on display. And what we find out, that what makes the revelation of God in the, the Old and the New Testament unique is God reveals himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons who are one in essence, this, this loving community of unity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Some people use the term the Trinity, however you want to describe it. It's a picture that before there was anything, there was Father, Son, and Spirit in this perfect relationship of love. And so God made everything, and you see, if you read Genesis 1, it, you get this sense of God just pouring out all these good things and it's, it's like he, he created this banquet, and then he made someone who could enjoy it. He made us. And he didn't make us because he needed us. He made us so that we could enjoy him, and we could be like him, and we could be drawn into the community that he has, and that we could experience community. That's why, and you'll see the second, God said it's not good. The first thing he said that wasn't good was for us to be alone. That being alone was, was not part of his plan and design. And so, humanity, it's, we're not an accident. We are a divine creation with a purpose. And fundamental to that purpose is this, this instinct towards community. It's inescapable. You can't go anywhere in the world and not see it. Now, I don't mean there aren't people who have experienced things in their lives that have driven them away from community. That's clearly true. And there there clearly are people who have been hurt and have have done things themselves uh, to self-sabotage and have have broken, in many ways, the the bonds that, that God tried to establish in their lives to be in community. But the first thing you see in Genesis 1 is that we're made in God's image. We are made in God's image. And then, and then in Genesis chapter 2, let's read here, starting at verse 4. It says, this is the account. It's going to repeat. So what, what the writer of Genesis does is in chapter 1, he gives you a broad survey. Then in chapter 2, he telescopes in a little bit more and, and gives you some more details. And then in chapter 3, he's going to focus in again a little further on another aspect of, of creation. So chapter 2, he says, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth and no plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no man to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. Now the Lord... Planted the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there He put the man He had formed. And the Lord, the Lord God, excuse me, made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden were two trees: the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And there was a water, it says, that, that watered that garden. And down in verse fifteen, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, after seeing everything he made that was good, he said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And this is where the creation of woman comes in. But let's stop at that point and look at what he says. He makes this beautiful creation and he says it's not good for us to be alone. This is the first thing that God said wasn't good about everything he made. Everything he made was amazing. But he saw that man by himself, and this is different than just Adam, uh, some, when, when God took part of Adam out and created Eve, Adam was different. But he created, his intent was community. And that out of those two people would come a world full of people. He blessed them. He gave them some unique ability to to grow and multiply and to form community that would in some way reflect the community of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That there would just be this rich life. That He made us for that. That was what He designed us for. That's where that instinct comes from. Where we seek to connect with other people. And it's not an instinct that we should have any shame or, or, or any suspicion of. It's a good thing. Well, what he says is that we were made... Oh, I'm sorry. He goes on and he says uh, in verse 24 after he creates woman, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. Then he says, the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. And there isn't anybody in the world who's felt that. Because we come into the world, and we'll look at where this all comes from in just a second, we come in the world with this sense of shame. We carry it. We're trying to overcome it. And we use clothes and other sorts of conventions to try to hide that shame. It's painful. Yet they lived in this incredible sense of shamelessness and innocence that people dream of. That I think at different times we touch it in our relationship with God and with other people. We find people that that we can be honest with, people that we can trust, people that love us. We have these moments where we feel like, oh, I'm not bad. I, 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 I have flaws. I have struggles in my life. I have character flaws, and, and I've done bad things, but I'm not innately bad. That our relationships are how we discover that. So they had this relationship with God where they had this face-to-face interaction with him, and they had this open-hearted community amongst themselves between Adam and Eve at this point that, you know, we can only dream of. It's the stuff that we write stories about, and that's what they did. Now, the word naked there becomes a word that becomes, I'm going to show you in a second, it becomes this, it's a real key theme that we have to, to, this is the picture God wants is for us and community, his idea of community is it's a place where people can be vulnerable and honest and transparent and not hide and have no shame. And when they feel shame, the love that they experience and the grace that they experience and the life of Jesus that they experience from other people help to begin to diminish that shame because it's, it's always going to be there, but it's supposed to be decreasing The sense of it is supposed to be not increasing but decreasing in our life. But that comes out of relationship with God and with one another. And they were made in this this passage we just read. They were made to do life together. To be naked. To be vulnerable. To be open. Without any shame. To experience just simple joy in that. And this purpose is something that our deeply embedded American individualism fights against. God's trying to realize a purpose in our lives of us doing life together, of us being naked and unashamed. But American individualism surrounds us and it permeates us and it, and it permeates the way we think and then, and then as a result of the way we think, the way we relate And it causes us to hide. And when we hide, all we do is we just bury the shame. We send it underground. And then it just controls our lives. And it robs us of things. Because what shame makes us do is it makes us hide. Now, shame, you're going to see, comes from somewhere. And shame has, you know, there's different ways we could describe it. And this isn't gonna be it's a deep subject we're we're not gonna have the time to, to look into. But Jesus one of the most familiar sayings of Jesus in the New Testament was in the book of John and Jesus said this. We're gonna see it played out. Jesus said the thief, Satan, the tempter, comes to steal, kill and destroy. But I came that you might have life. And so there's this crucial thing that you're going to see. The reason why we have this instinct to connect with people is because God designed us for that. And that he says, the richness, the rich life I have for you is found there. It's not found in isolation. And if you isolate, you, you will only find just little shreds of the life that I mean for you to know. Just scraps and leftovers. Again, the book of Genesis is, is the terms that, that the writer uses to describe God and what he did was God gives us this rich banquet out of his generosity and, and his riches. And then he puts us in the middle of it and, and makes us capable of enjoying it and enjoying him and everything he made. And then he just gives us responsibilities. And as we'll see we mark them up and then there is this aftermath that what we call the fall and so Jesus says there's an abundant life that we all have this desire for and it's an abundant life that isn't just us and God, it's an abundant life where we do life together with God and with others. You know It's inconceivable to understand the New Testament without realizing that that's what God's getting at. He's trying to get at reconciling us to one another and reconciling us to God. It's the the cross. We've said this for years here, over and over and over. And we're designed to do life together. God put them in this garden and He walked with them in the garden. And the word put, In the first part of Genesis, the Hebrew word for put is a different word than the writer uses when it says, he says, God put all these things here and there. When God put Adam and Eve in the garden, that word there means to consecrate. It's a word that means to consecrate with God's presence for a special purpose. There was something holy that what God was doing, God was saying, I'm going to fill my presence in this community. This community is going to become like a human container of my presence. I made this beautiful world, but that world can't experience me. But I'm, I'm going to make people in my image. And the greatest gift I could give them was to be able to know me. And to know the unfathomable love that I have for them that would flow into their lives and then flow through their lives to one another and just wash back over all the community over and over and over again that was God's will that's what we're designed for that's what we seek that's what we're trying to to realize to some degree and it's frustrating that we don't get more of it than we get but the next part of the story is Adam and Eve now I'll just summarize because I don't want to read to you Adam and Eve are tempted in the garden and this serpent says to them as Is the story which most people are familiar with. Why don't you eat of this other tree that God says, no, don't eat it. Uh, He knows that if you eat of that tree, then you're going to be like him. He's been holding back on you. He, He doesn't know what's good. You know what's good. Even though over and over it says God knows what's good. Good, 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 good. He says to them, if you eat of this tree, if you decide that you are capable of knowing what's good on your own, then you're going to experience death. You're going to experience all kinds of trouble. And so don't eat of that tree. That's a choice that, that, we're, that everyone will always be tempted with. And so we have a choice. If, if God's design for us is community, it is to do life together, we face the choice of are we going to live our lives and try to follow Jesus as, as rugged American individualists. Who, who, who do life together when it's convenient? Who do life together if it fits in our schedule? Or, you know, if our favorite show isn't on TV, or, you know, whatever sports things our kids are in, or we want to be involved in, or I don't, God forbid that we would interrupt golf for community. Uh, you know, all these things, we have to ask ourselves do we have any sense of the community? that God wants us to have, and we, and we have to make a choice. They had a choice to make. Adam and Eve had a choice to make. And when they made the wrong choice to choose their own wisdom and their own ways, it was tragic, and the consequences were, are, are, are still being experienced by every human being and that, that's, that's ever lived and ever will live. And In Genesis, these consequences... Let me, let me go over them for you. So at the end of chapter 2, the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. So when we listen to God and we embrace His wisdom, even when that wisdom challenges us, even when that wisdom looks like that's going to be costly, that's hard, God. Why would you ask me to do that? If we trust Him... We will experience more and more and more of being able to be naked but not ashamed. As soon as they, experience, as soon as they listen to the wisdom of the serpent, which basically said, you know, you're, you're, you're made in the image of God, do whatever you want to do. Whatever God's designed for your life is, you know better. You're grown up now. You don't need that sort of arcane religious wisdom. You're, you're a better person than that. You know, you're an educated person. We all hear that kind of a message and we go our own way. Well, there was, in Hebrew, the writers in Hebrew, it's hard for us to get it because Hebrew is a real small, has a small vocabulary, but they use these play on words. These play, they take a word and they tweak it and they use it in a story to make a point. And our ears can't hear it. But what happens is, they go from being naked and unashamed to being naked and ashamed and the word naked there isn't the same word as naked here it means to be under to be naked and under god's judgment so when they went their own way they saw that they were naked but it wasn't the other kind of naked now it was being naked instead of being naked under god's blessing now they're naked under god's judgment And it's this word, the word goes from arum to aram to aram to arar. And the last word is arar means now they were under the curse. So they started under God's blessing when they embraced his wisdom, and they were naked and unashamed. Because they chose their own wisdom, they came under God's judgment, and then they came under his curse. And the curse was God saying, because you've done this, because you were... The most significant of my creation, and you were the ones that I entrusted care over everything, your disobedience is going to impact everything and everyone. Because that's what significance does. Significance confers on us impact. Our choices really do matter. Not just to us, they matter to everybody. It is the worst kind of lie to think that there is a victimless crime. Our lives are so intertwined in ways that we can't appreciate as Americans. But we can see it in these stories. Here's two people who we'll all meet one day. I think it's going to be interesting to meet Adam and Eve. There are two of the people, when I think about What's it going to be like when God creates a new heaven and a new earth? And and I think Adam and Eve will be there. And I think they make it, quote, unquote, right? (laughs) I think it's going to be interesting to have a conversation with them just to see what life was like. And then what was the snake? What was that all about? You know, was it like, was it like up and talking, you know, like what was its accent? And, you know, because, like the commercial says, all the villains are British. (laughs) Did the snake have a British accent? (laughs) And they go, we don't know what British is, John. And I go, oh, that's right, you're Adam and Eve. That was before the British. Okay. Well, it would be interesting to talk to Adam and Eve and find out what was this all about. But they had to be standing there when God says to them, he says, basically, he says, Because you made this choice, there's three consequences. Now, I'm not going to read the the text, but he says, because first he talks to the serpent, then he talks to Eve, then he talks to Adam. And he basically says there's going to be constant spiritual warfare between the serpent and the seed of the woman. But he gives hope. Then he says to the woman, because of you, there's going to be constant relational conflict. And then he says to the man, because of you, there's going to be constant vocational frustration and sickness and death. Now, that's not a pretty picture that gets painted when, that teaches us what happens when we reject God's wisdom, when we choose ours. Whatever ours is, however well-intentioned it is, there will be consequences. And he says that, the, again, it's the picture that you see, is instead of this blessed environment in a, that a community can be placed in, that is filled with God's presence. That's just God is just firing out of everything, every flower, you know, every raindrop, every cloud, every interaction. It's just full of God's presence. Now there's all this pain and sorrow, and it's the curse, the curse. And when you read it, it's hard not to hear the heartbreak in God as he says this. Because he conferred on them this incredible significance, and then they chose foolishly to go their own way. And then, boom, all this carnage ensues for all time, for all history, for all eternity. But even in that curse, God gives the promise of the Redeemer, the Messiah, hope, that, that something was going to happen that was going to change everything. That God wasn't going to leave it like this. Well, Henry David Thoreau said, my friend Scott Hendricks reminded me of this yesterday, most men leave, lead lives of quiet desperation, and they go to the grave with the song still in them. And the song could mean many things, but most. American Christians lead lives of quiet desperation alone. And we wonder, God, why aren't you more real to me? Because God is, means to be real to us when we do life together, not when we try to do it alone. He means for us to, to become a, a, a human, a community to be a human container of his presence and we see snatches churches experience little moments of that but we just leak we're we're, we're not in in the truest sense of the word a temple we're, we're churches are more like a pile of of building material right you just it's just all piled there but it's not connected if it's it could be built together into something amazing but there's not a will in the building material to allow God to build them together because it's messy and it's hard and it's challenging. And it means we have to be willing to be naked. To be naked. And we aren't. You're not and I'm not. And so what does that leave us with? If, if we're created to be naked and unashamed and that is crucial to this thing being what it could be, how do we get there? How do we ever get past our instinct to to hide? Our instinct to let shame control us and fear and you know other base motivations. How do you get past that? Well that's in the does, does any of that sound familiar? Is there any of that desire in you? the good and bad desire. I mean, the desire not to be alone, but then the constant choices that you make to be alone and to hide. Because Jesus is the only one that can get us out of that. Now, I want you to look at the New Testament. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 and 14, I want to close with this. Two things. So, uh, look back in the New Testament in the Book of Galatians, and as you're looking, I don't know about you, but the Adam and Eve story is my story. There's no doubt. That is my story, and I think most people, if if they are objective and not defensive, they can look at Adam and Eve's story and go, I can, yeah. I can see pretty much the contours of my life in that story. And I can, ex- I can see in me a desire not to be alone, but yet this stubborn unwillingness to do life with others and live naked and unashamed. It is just this terrible battle within us. Well, in Galatians chapter 3, it, it, I don't want to... give you the background of this, but Paul says to the Galatians who are struggling to reconcile the gospel with other philosophies they've been taught and other religious teachings that they've heard. And so Paul's trying to show them that Jesus gets them where they want to go in a way that no other teaching they'll ever hear or have ever heard will get them. That Jesus is the only one that can bring the promises that they've heard God has for us into their lives. And so in verse 13, he says, he starts here, he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. He, Jesus, redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to us, to the Gentiles, through Christ, so that by faith, we may receive the promise of the Spirit. And so, he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Cursed is everyone who hung on a tree. Christ redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to us. So, Adam and Eve were cursed by God for their disobedience. And that curse, the effect of it, continues to this day. It continues in the lives of five-year-olds. It continues in the lives of middle schoolers. It continues the lives of high schoolers and adults. It continues the lives of the oldest people who live on the earth. Every one of us. And in the Old Testament, Paul is, is drawing out an Old Testament principle to them it, it, that it's, it connects with what we just read in Genesis. In the Old Testament, under the law of Moses, people who committed capital crimes would be stoned, and then they'd be hung on a tree as a sign of, of divine judgment. Okay, so when people committed serious crimes, there would be uh, justice carried out. They were given a trial. They had, you know, they had a, a, a legal system, and it was amazingly advanced for its day. But if they were found to have committed a capital crime, then they would be taken outside the city and they'd be stoned. And then they would be hung on a tree. And they wouldn't be hung there until their body rotted. They would just be hung there for a short time. But it would be a picture of God's judgment. Okay? That's the backdrop of what Paul says when he says, Cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. And then what what Paul's saying, the gospel tells us is that Jesus lived a perfect life that we didn't live. In other words, he didn't commit a capital crime. In fact, he never committed any crime, any sin ever. He obeyed God perfectly his whole life. And then he was crucified naked on a tree, a Roman cross, to suffer and die in our place. And what Paul's saying is the curse that was put on all of us that we all struggle with, the curse of being caught between a desire not to be alone but yet also an unquenchable thirst and commitment to hide and not be vulnerable and not be naked and unashamed. Being caught in that place, Jesus, the curse that that drives that, was put on Jesus. That he took that curse for us. And that, he redeemed us from its power. He's the only one that could ever do that. Now they were being told that if you tr- if you just try hard to be a good person and you try to keep God's rules, that eventually you know God, you will be pleasing enough to God to be to come under God's favor. But Paul says no. Earlier and in, in just before the passage we read, he said, "If you try to live under the law, the law expects you to live under it perfectly, and nobody does. So then you're stuck." If you're hoping the law can get you out of the hole you're in, all trying to keep it will do is get you in a deeper hole. Because as soon as you try to earn God's favor by your religious performance or your moral obedience, you're going to find how many times you don't want to do what God wants and how many times you bail on doing his will. And then you're just further behind the eight ball. But Paul says, Jesus redeemed us. And they use that word from their slave markets where people would be sold and bought by people you know, for uh, uh, servants and workers, and Paul says, and, and slaves were very expensive and, and there were millions of slaves in the Roman Empire, and so when someone was was redeemed, a price was paid so they could be free. Now sometimes that just meant they could be sold from one master to another, but it, he's using the idea here of not just being sold from one master to another, but being freed completely. A person with real rights now and no longer a slave. That's what redemption means. And he says that Jesus did that on the cross. And so what he's offering us is in the gospel, if we freely receive Jesus, if we freely accept him by faith, not by some bargain we're trying to make, then God takes the curse that's been on our lives and it gets transferred to Jesus. And the life that Jesus lived gets transferred to us. It's it's an unfair exchange and Jews struggled with it because they couldn't understand how the Messiah, who was supposed to be the most blessed person who's ever lived, more blessed than Moses, He was Somehow, God among us, Emmanuel, how he could die and be cursed, and how that could be the plan of God. They couldn't get their heads around it. They just go, There's no way that God could be in that. And that's what we all struggle with. We struggle with can God really be in this way of, of getting me out of this mess that I'm in? Yes. It is the only way we ever get out of the mess that we get ourselves into. Is we, and the the promise is not, he didn't redeem everybody. He only redeemed the people. I mean, he he offers redemption to everybody, but to experience it, Paul uses this phrase here. He says, uh, he redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. We have to be in Christ. We have to have received Christ into our life. We have to be willing to yield up control of our life and surrender our life to him and put our trust in him that he will take the curse, that what he did on the cross for us will actually take the curse away from our life and that we'll send God himself, God his spirit into our life and that we will begin to have the wherewithal to move towards community and to begin to choose to live to a greater and greater degree, naked and unashamed. Jesus is the only one that can get us there. And some of us, you've experienced that, but you hear the, you also hear, so there's two groups of people here. There's people here who still haven't experienced that in Christ. You never really yielded your life to Jesus and believed in him. You never ask him into your life in that way. And then there's others of us, we've done that, we don't realize that the call to Jesus is also a call to community. The two great commandments, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And the, the second one is not an option. Love your neighbor as yourself. It, it implies all kinds of reciprocal responsibilities. It requires this intimacy and connection. You know that each of you, we'll talk about this next week, each of you have been given spiritual gifts that are meant to bless other people, that are crucial to the growth and the welfare of other people. And their gifts are crucial to your welfare and growth and your spiritual vitality. But if you don't put yourself in proximity to those people as a way of life and you don't do life together, their gifts can't meaningfully impact you and your gifts can't meaningfully impact them and I mean just think about if, if you think I, I used a picture last week of one of the things we're trying to put in our rearview mirror is we don't want to be a drive through church most churches are drive through churches we have aspects of that here and a drive through church is you talk to <laughs> you order and you go to the window and something good comes You drive away, but you're in your car by yourself. Maybe there's a couple other people in your car with you. But it's it's this picture of disconnection, not connection. And real community means there are times in your life where people kick you butt. That's that's the theological term. Where people challenge you. You know you're doing life together. Now I know, those of us that are married, we know what that's like. We're 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 challenged in our relationship on a a daily basis. But I'm talking about other people to whom you've not sworn a lifelong fidelity and wearing rings and all that. I'm talking about people who you let into your life and you let see enough about your life for them to go, "Ah, what is this thing you do here? when you act this way. That's what doing life together implies. And that's what we avoid. And that's why our relationship with God oftentimes is so impoverished. Cuz here's the truth. This is the punchline. We'll leave you. We're going to we're going to worship. In fact, Bob, where are we? Bob, you still here Bob? I know you're here somewhere. There's a a simple truth that you if you'll learn it, it'll, it'll make a profound difference in your life. When God invites us into relationship with himself, he knows everything about us. We aren't hiding anything from him. But we have to come to terms with the fact that we still try to hide stuff from him and from other people. We do. It's just the way we are. And, and here's what we lose. When we hide the unpresentable parts of ourselves, we hide the parts of ourselves that most need God's love. And we struggle with the meager resources that we have to try to meet the needs of that part of ourselves. When God says, I'm the one that made everything for you, I'm the one that sent my son to die for you, will you stop hiding? Will you commit to living, doing life together with other people in a way that lets them know who you really are so then my love can begin to touch those parts of you that are most unpresentable, that you're most ashamed of, that you're most afraid of people finding out about? I I told one of my friends today I'm going to talk about nudist colonies. Got this look like, what? People go to nudist colonies... To come out of hiding. But that doesn't, that doesn't do it. Do you understand? Being naked doesn't help you to, to be naked in the sense of community. Now, there is a, people tell me that there is a kind of liberty that you experience in that. But it's not the depth of liberty that we really are looking for. What we want to know is, will you love me if you know what I'm really like? And I, I'm married to someone who loves me, and she knows what I'm really like. I've experienced the love of Jesus in my life more deeply through my wife than any place else. But I've also experienced it through so many of my friends. But the cost for me is to experience that is I have to become more committed to being naked and unashamed around them. And that isn't something, you know, you don't just walk in the building and walk up to burn. Say, hey, you know, I, I, I stole some money from work last week. <laughs> I've been struggling with that for a while. And people are looking. <laughs> the coffee bar person is stepping back. You know. <laughs> but there's people that you should be able to tell that to. Do you understand? And if you, if you don't have people to tell that to, I feel bad for you. Do you have that in your life? That's what God's trying to create amongst us. That's what our life groups, have. that's what our home groups have been in the past, and we're trying to get them there on a consistent basis. But that's what we want to be able to do is do life together where we can be real like that. And we can be real in the most important ways that we need to be real. And I want to ask you, do you have that in your life outside of your marriage or a close friend? Do you have that here in the vineyard? If you call the Vineyard Church home, God wants you to do life with other people here. And that's going to mean changes in your schedule. And you may go, oh, man, come on. Why can't everybody change and fit my schedule? Well, that's part of the whole negotiation. You figure out how that works, but you have to be committed to it first. So why don't you stand with me? I, I want to pray today, a simple thing. I want to... I just want you to take a moment and sing this song that Bob's gonna lead, and then I wanna pray for you, because I believe that there's a blessing that God wants to put in your life, that if you are tired of living under the, the curse, in isolation, in perpetual spiritual warfare, perpetual conflict and frustration, Perpetual sickness, vocational frustration, and fear and shame. And you want to begin to enter into God's purpose for you. The abundant life that Jesus has comes in community. It comes from Him in community. In and among His body. Where there's this reciprocal thing going. And I believe that the Spirit wants to give... Many of you who are hungry for that today... An impartation of his presence that will get you over the hump. That will touch you in a way that you will feel, you'll begin to have the inner resources to begin to be self-disclosing and vulnerable in ways that you've been reluctant to. Because you can't do it on your own. You have to go to Jesus first, but then if you go to Jesus, you have to know He's trying to get you into this deeper thing called community and connection. But you have to be willing to say, okay, Lord, I'm going to start letting people see the most unpresentable parts of myself with your help. And so that's the step I want to ask some of you to take today, those of you that feel like that's where I'm at. Because I believe that God wants to touch you. I also think there's other things He wants to do here, and there's some of you here that heard the gospel that when we're praying about this, if you want to ask Christ in your life, he's, he's, he's drawing you, he's inviting you today. So let's do this song and then we'll pray.